I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is reconstruction, and we're joined by Dr. Eddie S. Glaude. Dr. Glaude is a James McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University and is also a New York Times bestselling author. And he is the host of a really popular podcast called History Is Us. It explores how American history haunts us and how our past failures and refusals to admit them continue to shape the way we live our lives today. He also wrote a book that we'll link in the show notes called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. It was a great conversation and you guys are going to love hearing from Dr. Glaude. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Eddie Glaude, who most of you should know, but if you don't know, you're about to find out. So, Mr. Glaude, Dr. Glaude, Eddie. Yeah, yeah, Eddie. That sounds great. That sounds better. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I know that your time is limited. Um, We're just so blessed that you're here. We always start our interviews off when we interview African-American guests, the most important question that, you know, for me is, who is Eddie Glaude? Who are you? Outside of all this stuff that people rely on you for, you know, in the news and, you know, the things that you do, who <laughs> is Eddie Glaude? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a hard question on, on a certain level. Um, basically, I'm a country boy from Moss Point, Mississippi. Wow. Um, I'm my mama's baby, mm. Juanita Glaude, who dropped out of school in the ninth grade. Eddie Glaude Sr., who scared the living daylights out of me. Um, so a country boy who made good, who's trying to figure out how to to live his vocation in the midst of all of that. So, And, you know, I grew up as a nerd. I played Dungeons and Dragons and all that stuff. Hey, so that's you're at Lord of the Rings. So, you know, <laughs> in the midst of all of this, I was the cool nerd, as it were. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Yep. I fancy myself a cool nerd. Yeah. cool nerds or what's up so i want to get into your podcast you do a lot more than just your podcast but your podcast is brilliant very well done and want to push our audience there so i want to start by just saying the name of it history is us which i think is the number one history podcast on itunes right now so i don't know if you know that (laughs) you guys are doing good work uh, and so I want to push our audience awesome. there, but also want to just open by giving you a chance to tell us about specifically you started the Reconstruction era and recast what happened in Reconstruction. One of the kind of points you guys make is that Reconstruction didn't fail, it was killed. killed. Um, right. So if you could talk about just what is Reconstruction for anyone who's who's catching up and not familiar yet, and then what happened during that era and just give us an overview of what you've discovered. So I think, you know, I think it's really important. Thank you for that question. I think it's important 
to give uh, a little context. Um, you know, in in the middle of or in the midst of the insurrection in January on January sixth, this attempted coup, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas uh, invoked the presidential election of eighteen seventy six, the commission or the what became known as the Hayes Tilden Compromise mm-hmm. of eighteen seventy seven, as a framework for addressing the controversy around uh, the twenty twenty election, and it was this ironic moment. You know, not only might we think of, you know, 1876 as the occasion for the Electoral Count Act, which came up recently, but it also marks the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of the Dark Ages in terms of race matters in the country. So Reconstruction is this period right after the Civil War ends uh, where the South, uh, the region of the South that was in rebellion, the, the Confederacy, uh, is in some ways brought back in to uh, the Union. It is a series of processes of how to uh, reunify the country after the carnage of the Civil War. And so when we think about that period, you know, between 1865, after Abraham Lincoln is assassinated, um, and the period in which Andrew Johnson, in effect, tries to, um, how can I put this? He, he, he allows those Southerners who were in rebellion to just come back in mm-hmm. <laughs> with, no, with no consequence, with no account. I mean, it's really fascinating. But then, you know, the, the Congress takes over and you get radical reconstruction. And radical reconstruction is, to my mind, this moment where we begin to see the, found, the second founding, right? mm-hmm. the emergence of the modern U.S. nation state, which comes out of the Civil War, which has everything to do with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the end of slavery, 14th Amendment, which gives us a different, more robust conception of citizenship, due process, and the 15th Amendment, which gives uh, black men, not black women, the right to vote. And what we see are these kind of reconstruction governments all across the South in which these formerly enslaved people are brought into the body politic. They are now taking on the burdens and benefits of citizenship. Um, and they're running for office, they're participating in governance uh, in the South, which really didn't have a broad-based public school edu- a public education system. These former enslaved folk begin to build that education system. Uh, many HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities that were created within the context of or being created in this period. Um, and so it's a, it's a phenomenal, almost a extraordinary act of democracy that the world had never seen to take this number of formerly enslaved people and uh, bring them into the body politic. Now, at the very beginning of radical reconstruction, there is the backlash. There is this attempt to undo it. Mm-hmm. And the Hayes-Tilden Compromise represents, I think, its culmination, symbolically at least. I mean, as early as 1866, you get the Memphis riots, right? Where you have... Uh, white police officers, white citizens in Memphis literally attacking black folk who who dare to act as if they're free. You get Colfax, you get um, what what the historian Doug, Douglas Egerton says is that, you know, he's quoting Robert, Malls, Robert Smalls, a state, black state legislator from South Carolina, mm-hmm. who delivers his talk. I'm, I'm going on too long. I'll shut up. No, in 1895, please. in 1895, on, on the floor of the state legislature in, in of the House of Representatives in um in South Carolina, and he sees what's happening, and he tries to put forward an argument, you know, bringing data, and he says 53,000 black activists have been murdered since the end of the Civil War. 
these are the poll workers. These are the black folk who are trying to organize in the Republican Party, just systematically killed. So we pay attention to the, the spectacle of, of large-scale violence, but there's this everyday violence, not only by the Ku Klux Klan, but by those Southern elites who are trying to maintain power. So what we try to do is to say, what does it mean for Senator Cruz to invoke the 1877, the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, as a framework when 1877 marks the end of this attempt at multiracial democracy and ushers in, in effect, the dark ages for the country when it comes to race matters. And so that's what we try to tell that story. We try to tell that story. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I have in my notes, 2,000 black men during that period, that high water mark, served in elected office. Mm. Like sheriffs, there was a, senator, a U.S. senator, there were congressmen who were elected. And so there was this surge of black men, black people taking their, like taking up the mantle of being democratic citizens. And America had this chance to move towards a multi, a true multiracial democracy. There was within like the poor white community and the black community, there was collaboration on labor Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to, to work together to try to uplift the whole of the labor class to have better and more fair and more just opportunity to work. But then there was this systematic backlash that you kind of talked about, alluded to. I remember W.B. Du Bois in in his Black Reconstruction um, talks about how in some of the Southern states, and and there's not good data on all this. The the data wasn't collected very well, but in some of the Southern states, there were one to two lynchings a day reported in in that era. Uh, This white supremacist violent backlash against the prospect of black people becoming equal citizens. Right. And see, the thing that's really fascinating too, right? I mean, so, you know, even with Smalls data, right? If you have 53,000 black activists murdered from the end of the Civil War to 1895, that's 30 year period. Mm. You're talking in effect, a thousand plus people killed a year, five people killed a day. Mm. And that's just the data collected. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you think about Part of what we have to do, I don't talk about this in the podcast, but part of what we have to do is not exceptionalize the South with regards to this violence. Mm. There is something happening, you know, when, when, you know, most, the South really, the complicated story about the South being occupied by Union troops, because uh, the removal of Union troops by by Rutherford B. Hayes is basically symbolic, because most of those troops had already been moved South in order to execute uh, uh, the the battles with, with Native peoples in the West. But what's interesting is that, you know, when you think about Jefferson Davis being under arrest, you know who paid his bail? Mm. Vanderbilt. Jared Smith. Guy who funded, in some ways, John Brown stuff. So part, part, of, what, part of what we're talking about is that there are, uh, there, there's not only white supremacy at work. I don't go into this in the podcast, but there's also deep capitalist interest. Yeah. In, in maintaining that labor, mm. right, in the South. And so part of what we have to unpack when we think about the, the death, the murder, the assassination of radical reconstruction, or what are the various interests that converge, that generate this, 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 the end to what was in some ways, as Du Bois says, this extraordinary experiment at multiracial democracy. Um, and, you know, it, it reveals that political violence is a through line in our politics in some ways, you know, and as well as greed. Mm, absolutely. Wow. 
So how does that, the understanding of that story, the understanding of reconstruction being killed rather than failing, how does that shift the way that we should conceive of the American story and our place in it? Such a great question. In so many ways, what I've been trying to do and what I try to do in the podcast is to disrupt what I take to be this very efficient American ideology. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we're always talking about that we're, we're on the road to a more perfect union. That that is, in some ways, that formulation that America is always on the road to a more perfect union, to my mind, it works as a rich, like a ritual of absolution, a way of forgiving our sins, um, a way of announcing moral holidays that allow us to kind of look past history that suggests that we are not an example of democracy achieved, that America is not that that the American story is not this linear story that we're always already on the road to a more perfect union progress, right? Mm-hmm. That it's really about fits and starts, one step forward, two steps back. That we're actually a very imperfect people try, trying desperately to figure out how to live together. Wow! Yeah. And at the heart of that, at the heart of that, is. Uh, the reality of race. Hmm. Yeah, that recognition uh, that progress isn't guaranteed, that the the moral arc of the universe is long, and there has been a way in which over time it has bent towards justice. But if we look at that as inevitable or guaranteed and don't recognize that we can actually move backwards, then there's like an abdication of that responsibility to actively pursue justice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you think about after 1877, we begin to see the, uh, you know, it takes a period for the the architecture of Jim Crow to take shape. Mm -hmm. But we know that Frederick Douglass lived long enough to see um, Abraham Lincoln sign the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. And he lives long enough to see the states of Tennessee and Mississippi passed the first Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. He calls these folk the apostles of forgetfulness. And we know that by 18, uh, what, 1896, 1898, which I'm repressing it is early in the morning, um, Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, right? Uh, um, That's not overturned until Brown v. Board, 1954. Mm -hmm. 1954. We passed the 15th Amendment, that allow black men to vote, but we don't get, really, we need a series of civil rights acts and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? And so America hasn't really been a multiracial democracy Mm. uh, (laughs) until 1960, it started in 1965 Mm. in some ways, when you think about it, right? And then, and barely then, and now we see right now in our current moment, and this is, the, I think, the, the point of the podcast, is that history haunts, right? Our history haunts, our, our choices haunt, that here we are fighting the battle uh, around voting rights, fighting the battle of a woman's, a woman's right to control her body, fighting the battles around LGBTQ, uh, right? Fighting the battles around whether or not we're going to be a democracy, right? This, this, this is... This is our history. These are the choices we've made in the past, right, that have us by the throat. And so part of the, wor- part of the work of history is us 
is to is to take seriously Faulkner and and Baldwin and Twain, right? You know, Faulkner, you know, the past is not dead, the past is not even past. You know, Baldwin, you know, we carry history in us. Twain, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it damn sure rhymes, you know, that sort of thing. So I want to talk about, because you brought this up, Roe v. Wade. Right now, the climate as a black woman to see you have pro-lifers who have made this issue around being pro-birth, for lack of better words, not pro-life, but pro-birth. And we care about babies. We care about, you know, and I, and I, and I, I, I mean, black babies, because of course they use all these statistics that to indict black women mm-hmm. and the number of abortions with no, no framework for the history and how we got where we are. And then you have pro-choicers who are invoking images of the handmaiden's tale and, and oh, you know, it's going to be awful from now on. And white feminism, it's like, it's going to be awful from now, from now on, but it's been awful for mm-hmm. black women. How does the history and reconstruction, mm-hmm. the death of reconstruction, the killing of reconstruction, how does chattel slavery, how does all of that inform Roe v. Wade? Because it's not just the issue of, of, of politicizing the womb that people make it. It's all the things that create the disparities. Could you speak to that? There, there are a number of different layers to that question. And it's, again, it's a great question. Um, one is that white women, women in particular, in, in general, but white women in particular are experiencing, right, the the betrayal that was Reconstruction. What does it mean to have a right that you think is guaranteed to be taken away? Yes. So there is this deep sense of um, anxiety and angst that they're experiencing something, I think, that was experienced within the context of Reconstruction. So that that's at the level, that's at a certain existential level, at a certain way of, of, of being in the world, a certain way of thinking about one's experiences in the world. But I think it's really important for us to to to, to um, situate Roe v. Wade within the context of the overall history of the country. I would urge anyone. It's a very difficult essay, but I think it's an important essay to read by Hortense Spillers entitled "Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe." Mm. It's it's an extraordinary explore, exploration of gender and slavery, and the like, um, and the ways in which Black women are ungendered yes. in the context of slavery and what that means. You know, because black women's wombs are sites of capital accumulation, right? Because mm-hmm. it's literally producing profit in some ways. And so there's this sense in which the this one aspect of, of, of patriarchy is this battle over who's going to control the wombs of women, right? And so it's not, I understand that it's not just simply about babies, but in some ways the racial component is about babies, yes. right? So you see, think about Roe v. Wade in the context of great replacement theory, right? That is to say, this idea that demographic shifts are threatening the very fabric of the country, that 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 immigration represents an extinction-level event, to use uh, the great replacement novel out of 2012, uh, to use that language um, by Renaud uh, Cassius, I think his name is. Um, and, and so... Um, the idea, and even it was actually even in the, the 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 brief that was leaked, 
Alito was talking about demographic numbers and what's going on in terms of the birth rate and the right. like. Right. So there is this 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 desire to control the wombs of women, and particularly white women, and they're not really interested or concerned about what that would mean for uh, poor uh, uh, women, white or black or mm-hmm. brown, uh, women of color generally, mm-hmm. uh, because there's this feel among a certain sector, among a certain ideological sector, that is, that uh, uh, this is about the nation, this is about you know, the existence of white people as such. Yes. And so Roe v. Wade gets wrapped into that panic in interesting sorts of ways, right? Um, and, and of course, we have to understand that, I think, um, patriarchy um, uh, plays a central role uh, in the organizing of this society. Um, and with the revolutions of the mid-20th century, we talk about this, Right in the podcast, that the second Reconstruction, which is the Black freedom struggle of the mid-20th century, seeks to fulfill the broken promises of the first, but that second Reconstruction involved not only the Black freedom struggle, it involved the women's movement, mm-hmm. it involves the gay liberation movement, mm-hmm. and what we're experiencing today is a relitigation of the mid-20th century. And so part of the historical work that we have to do is to show by giving us, by telling a thicker story about the emergence of the conservative backlash, which we do in episode four, mm-hmm. um, as to how and how they've been engaged in ongoing work to undo the gains of the mid-1960s, right? Mm-hmm. And that is to control women's bodies, to put black folk and brown folk in their place, to limit immigration and the like. So that's a... That was rambling, but I'm trying to no, try to read for an answer there. Not at all. And, and the commodification of black women's wombs is nothing new to us. And that's the point. Like, it is nothing new to us. It is the core of our existence as black women in America for 400 years. And this desire or this aim to control the, des- you know, the desire of women. Yes. Right. That yes. you that you know your desire has to be only in the service of reproduction, yes, right. And so it's this ongoing, you know, it's well anyway, anyway. <laughs> so one of the ways that power was taken during Reconstruction, and, and we kind of alluded to this, but just wanted to like bring it out a little bit more because you talk about it more in the in the podcast, is that all that white supremacist violence was not just random. It was not just sporadic, but it was targeted in a strategic way Mm -hmm. um, to disempower black people by removing leaders, removing, I think oftentimes labor organizers were targeted, voting rights activists were targeted, oftentimes ministers were targeted because they were at the center of the community and like organizing the community towards a pursuit Mm -hmm. of justice. And then I think there's like some parallels today that we could draw about ways that America's democracy is still not achieved like a true equality, a true multiracial democracy where everyone has equal representation. So could you talk about that kind of impulse to disempower and how that has played out yeah. past and present? I mean, again, part of the part, there's a presentist preoccupation driving the, the podcast. We want to account, there's a present, our moment demands a historical accounting. Of itself, yes, and so we're trying to do that. So just think about one of the recent January six hearings with Lady Ruby and Shea Moss, 
these are elect these are poll workers, you know, election workers, mm-hmm. everyday ordinary folk. They don't have the means to hire security. They don't, they're just everyday ordinary people doing the work that citizens ought to do, that we need citizens to do. And and in their in the in their testimony, we just hear harrowing uh, 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 descriptions of harassment. What does it mean for the most powerful man in the world to to target you eighteen times? Yes. What does it mean for a mob to 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 push open the house of your grandmother, the door of your grandmother, and to s- declare citizens' arrests? Remember, citizens' arrests was what got Ahmaud Arbery killed, right? So what? So so so. Part of what I tried to do in this moment, although that hearing hadn't happened yet when we recorded it, was to emphasize that the violence wasn't just simply spectacle. It wasn't just simply kind of mass riots in New Orleans or in Memphis or, you know, Colfax or Clinton or these sorts of places, right? It was everyday violence, people being killed in their, in their, at their, in, in their homes or at their, in their yards, people being attacked at the polls, people, um, and what Doug Egerton says in that moment is that these were the people who would eventually run for office. These were the leaders, the potential leaders of the community that they were targeting. And so, and then, of course, the terror unleashed in the context of Reconstruction, not just by the KKK, but by white citizens' councils later on in the mid-20th century, um, but, but by, by, by elites, Right. What's being what's what's being unleashed is a kind of terror. If you dare to exercise your civic responsibility, black people, you risk death. And so there's violence used to ensure that these formerly enslaved folk understand their place. They they are being subordinated. They are they there's another form of slavery to use Doug Blackman's language that, that is emerging. And they're being put in their place, and and it's being maintained and policed by violence, whether it's extra legal violence, or whether it's the violence of the state. And what we saw with Shea Moss and Lady Ruby and and others is that that violence. We heard it with regards to Brad Raffensperger. We heard it with regards to uh, the Speaker of the Assembly in Ari- the state of Arizona. And we heard, I mean, over and over again, uh, the threat of death, right, in order to, 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 to pursue a particular political agenda. Again, that's as American as apple pie and sagebrush and buffalo grass. And for us to understand that requires, I think, you know, that we take off the blinders that, that can be American exceptionalism and look the ugliness of who we are squarely in the face because, again, this is us. Mm. Eddie, I'm wondering what you would say to... I'm going to ask my, like, normal person question. <laughs> Karen and Katina have, like, these really deep questions, but I'm wondering if there's, like, a room of indifferent white male... Amer- that's who I'm thinking of. If, if I could, like, kind of collect a group of people in a room... And they're indifferent. Let's not say they're they're like working actively against the country to make it worse, but they're also not doing anything to make it better. They're just lukewarm. What do you say to them in regards to, you know, we talked about a lot of things just in like the last 30 minutes, but like what would you even say to them, to a room of people like that, that are just indifferent towards, you know, their life is fine. You know, this a lot of this doesn't affect their life to them. So mm-hmm. like what would you say to that audience? Their indifference is complicity. I mean, to be honest with you, 
Yes. It's not the, you know, the loud racists aren't the problem. We know who they are. We've always known who they are. I think the problem are those who worry that we're going too far. What does it mean to go too far when it comes to ending slavery? Yep. What does it mean to go too far in terms of questions of citizenship? I mean, think about, I, I invoke this moment. Uh, I use uh, Walt Whitman, who's one of my favorite um, authors, um, but he's a very complex figure. You know, I love Democratic Vistas, for example, uh, as an account of, of, of the perils and problems of democracy. But when you read Leaves of Grass in, the, in its initial publication, its first edition, it's in effect an abolition. It has abolitionist aims. It's anti-slavery poem. Is actually a character in the, in the poem that that voices its its disdain for slavery. But by the time of the last edition of the poem in the eighteen nineties, right, all of that has been redacted. Not the eighteen nineties. All of that has been redacted because Whitman didn't believe he was anti-slavery, but he didn't believe black people had the capacity to be citizens. Hmm. He thought we were bar- barbarians and baboons that we could not take up the burden of citizenship, even though he was anti-slavery. So those, the, the group of folk who are indifferent, it is the combination of loud races and indifference that allows for these moments of backlash. The combination of loud racists and those who are worried about us going too far. What does it mean? What does that mean to go too far? That, that, that combination is what allows for the backlash to happen. And so what I would say is that it, it does matter. It, does, it, is, it is a deeply moral position, right? And if you're on a mountain, to use William James's, the philosopher William James's language, if you're on a mountain pass and the storm is raging and you have to make a choice whether to go left or right and you choose to be still, that is a choice, hmm. <laughs> That is a choice, nevertheless. Wow. Yeah. Does that make sense, Brad? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I would just the thought that hits me in, in reflecting on that. It's like that we are human to the degree that we love, and that there's like an atrophied humanity in that coldness of just saying, "No, it doesn't affect me, so I'm not going to have empathy. I'm not going to play a part of it." There's like a lessening of our humanity when when we take that stance. Yeah. I want to ask you, for your own motivation, what drives you? You, from the the roots that you described earlier, those humble roots, there's something in you that has driven you to go as far and as fast as you can to make the world a better place. And what what has that drive been for you? And Mm. and maybe, uh, how how do we get some of that? How does the audience get some of that? (laughs) Hmm. You guys ask hard questions. (laughs) I was just looking for a quotation from Baldwin in his essay, uh, Words of a Native Son, about, you know, what it means to, how we have to get, uh, how we have to convince Americans to care for all of our babies. Mm -hmm. That if you can't care for all of our children, then something is broken in you. Um, As a response to the last formulation, but, What's at the heart, I have a sense of calling, a sense of vocation that drives my intellectual work. It's at the heart of, of how I breathe. And so my task is to bear witness to the world as it is, to offer languages for us to think of ourselves differently. Yes. To create the conditions under which 
uh, we can be together differently. You know, we're walking mysteries to each other. I keep saying this, uh, Jaren, I keep, I keep saying this to people. There's an intimacy, intimacy to America's hatred that we don't want to address. People knew who tied that fan around t- uh, Emmett Till's neck and threw him in the Tallahatchie River. Yes. Mm-hmm. They knew them because they drank beers with them. Yes. They played chess with them. Checkers, rather. They mm-hmm. ate they ate dinners with them. People know who attacked the Capitol. Because it's their brothers and their sisters and uncles and aunts and coaches. They're the ones that y'all tell at the dinner table, don't bring that here today. We're just gonna eat. Mm-hmm. The ones who you know are filled with hate and you love them and you don't know what to do with it. And that and I think that's at the heart of, of, of the angst and anxiety of the Civil War. Remember what's at the heart of the Civil War is brother against brother. Families against families. The carnage of, of the Civil War is rooted in this riff that was so intimate that it led to a kind of brutality that the world had never seen before. And so part of what we have to do is to figure out how to address the intimacy of our hatreds in the midst of the fact that we live such separate lives that we cannot live in that power of love, such that you can see a child, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their zip code, as worthy of being loved, of worthy of being able to dream dreams. So, short answer to the question, which I'm prone not to give, um, I don't know from whence it comes. I'm a child of the tradition that has produced me and I'm trying my damnedest in between these two momentous breaths, the first one and the last one, to live up to what that tradition demands of me. So so real quick, I want to go back to, because I think of Maya Angelou when she says, I'm the, the dreams and the hopes of uh, the enslaved. And mm. you're the cool nerd. And <laughs> I think that America was not ready. They had already presumed us inferior. Mm. They did not think that we would take off the way we did after being freed from enslavement. I think, you know, just like you talked about Whitman, thought that black people were buffoons. There's no way they, they thought that we were going to become activists, start our own schools, run for office. And I want you to speak to just that reaction of black people just taking off, going from being enslaved property, commodified, you know, just all the things that enslavement does and the presumed inferiority Mm. and us just taking off. Because I think there's a parallel between that and when President Obama took office. I think episode episode two in um, History is Us um, speaks directly to this. I I interview uh, Dave Blight, David Blight of Yale, Yale historian, and Imani Perry, my colleague at Princeton. And Imani Perry is head of this, she's uh, one of the principal researchers in this amazing teachers project that is housed at, at Harvard. And part of what we wanted to do in that episode is to kind of talk about what black folk did in response to the collapse or the murder of Reconstruction, in response to that violence. Mm-hmm. And what we see is this almost, I mean, unprecedented, I keep using this language, and maybe that's American exceptionalist language, but to my mind, it's this unprecedented push for literacy. When you see the push for education that happens coming out of slavery, 
Mm-hmm. And what black teachers do coming around the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, it actually te- offers us a different story about the mid-20th century. Because mm-hmm. usually we tell the story of the black freedom movement as the kind of radicalization of black men who fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. They go overseas, they experience freedom, they come home, they experience unfreedom, and they're radicalized, right? But what we see, according to, uh, and and Professor Perry lays this out very clearly in episode two, is that there are these schools, these black schools that are being founded in black communities across the country. Mm -hmm. And these young kids are being educated in a way that they begin to understand themselves uh, as not just simply victims of white supremacy, but crowns are placed above their heads, as yes. they would say in Morehouse. The expectation of a kind of excellence is cultivated in these spaces. And these young kids actually grow up to be the activists of the mid-20th century. Yes. And, she, and, she traced, and she does this beautiful move, makes this beautiful move by tracing the way Lift Every Voice and Sing became the Negro National Anthem in those very schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think part of what um, the story of, 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 of African Americans uh, reveal is how uh, the enduring power of the human spirit, that sounds rather kitschy, but it, it's actually true. Yes. But it also reveals uh, how, you know, the tragic nature of the American experiment that in spite of itself— you know, we 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 reach for forms of excellence, uh, but we have to struggle uh, um, repeatedly yes. in order to be our full selves. Yes. So tragically, we are running low on time, and I think that I would love to just sit and listen to you for hours. Yes. And our audience has the opportunity to do that by subscribing to History Is Us. So I want to send send everyone over, check out the podcast and and hear more of the wonderful work that you guys have done there. I also just want to invite you as we part to, in this format of a podcast, it's like you're speaking directly into the ears of people throughout our country who are driving to and from work, who are working out, who are doing doing these things. And just want to invite you, like you've been engaging with us for them, but want to invite you to speak directly to them, to the audience yeah. listener, to engage their hearts, to engage them. Like, what would you say where they're yeah. hearing you? Wow, that's a heavy burden. All is not settled. We're not, we're not stuck permanently in the station. We can be otherwise. We can be different. We can be better. I believe, I believe that this idea of whiteness fundamentally distorts and deforms American democracy. And you know what? I believe white people are more than their whiteness. I really do. I believe they are more than this idea of whiteness that has defined so much of American history. And the question for all of us, I think, is to do the hard work of imagining ourselves otherwise. If we don't, then we can, you know, then the Republic is in peril. Thank you so much. Yeah, mic drop, right? Like, thank you so much for the words that you've imparted. Thank you so much. I mean, you just, wow. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you all for all the stuff that y'all do. I really appreciate wow. you. This has been such a blessing to just sit and listen to you. And yes, everyone, please go listen to his podcast. 
Eddie Glaude. You also have written books. You want to yes. shout out oh, a couple? Yeah. You wrote a book I think on James Baldwin. The podcast right? actually works in tandem with my book, uh, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. You can support us on Patreon for $5 a month. Check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be discussing Sojourner Truth. We'll leave you with this quote from James Baldwin. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain.